life is not a straight line. You know, it has its detours and stops and curves. So I do, I would do that all over again because I learned a lot about myself and a lot about life. And, uh, and I think I was able to bring that story to others because I was vocation director for a number of years. So I was able to share my story with people and realize, I think it helped them to realize it's not just uh, a straight line of simplicity and it has its complexities. Welcome to Sharing Our Marianist Stories, a podcast produced by the North American Center for Marianist Studies in Dayton, Ohio. I'm Mike Bennett, Media Administrator for NACMAS. You're probably recognizing that I am not Gabby Bebo. Gabby has uh, since moved on from NACMAS to pursue doctoral studies, and within the past two months, uh, I have started as NACMAS's media administrator, overseeing all of our audio and video production, including our website, social media accounts, newsletter, and all things tech for NACMAS. I'm excited to be part of the team, and I'm looking forward to continuing to get my bearings in this new role. In today's episode, I'm excited to share with you a little bit of the story of Brother Jesse O'Neill, who is currently serving as the head of education on the Provincial Council, living in St. Louis, Missouri, and has been a professed brother for over 25 years. I'm Brother Jesse O'Neill. I live right now in St. Louis, uh, Missouri. I'm presently on the Provincial Council uh, for the Marinus Province of the United States as the Assistant uh, for Education uh, for the past five years. What what does the commitment uh, being on the Provincial Council look like? The Provincial Council has a lot of... uh, a lot of things on its agenda. You know, we're in a time in, in religious life where there are, there's a lot of giftedness and joy for the future, but also a lot of challenges. So there are tough decisions that need to be made, you know, in this time in history. And uh, I think we do pretty well as a group in that we don't always necessarily agree at the start of a conversation, but we can land at a place where everyone feels uh, comfortable. And that's a good thing. Yeah. So we can almost like f- finish each other's sentences now because <laughs> we know each other so well. And then we have two new people on the council this year. We're starting a new term. Uh, we had our assembly a few weeks ago and uh, that assembly um, had an installation ceremony where we were able to uh, install the new provincial council. So the core five were reappointed uh, for another three years. And then the the two new council members uh, joined us. So okay. we meet this coming week uh, for our planning days to map out the, uh, the year and years ahead. And what is your role on the council? I'm assistant for education, which is probably the largest umbrella facets um, in, of all the council members. So I have uh, the three universities, uh, the high schools, uh, the archives, uh, NACMIS, mm-hmm. um, the Leadership Development Office, uh, the Association of Marinus Universities. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, lot of pieces to it. So when I started, I, I was like, what the heck? It's, like, it's a lot. But you know what, if you if you have really good people in place, because I'm not a micromanager, so I, I trust people in the good work that they do. 
Tell me about your journey with the Marianists. I met the Marianists as a direct result of my father's death. Uh, when I was in high school, he died very suddenly. We were, my family was living in Florida at the time, and we moved up uh, outside Philadelphia in Chester, Pennsylvania, with my grandmother who lived down the street from this school that was run by the Marianists. And I wasn't saying this at the time, but I can look back and say that what attracted me to them was their uh, joy. Like they, they truly loved what they were doing, and I was attracted, you know, to that. And so that became a, became a long journey of uh, discernment, and uh, went to college and was a contact. And then I became an aspirant the two years after college, but then I left at the end of the two years. And the way I describe it to people is that I, I wanted to be at happy hour with the teachers and not at mass with the brothers mm. when I was in my early 20s. <laughs> mm-hmm. Then I got older, I realized you could do both. You now if you just like bounce things in life, <laughs> you know. So I left for five years, never with the intention of coming back. And then it ran full circle and came back. I did the aspirancy again and uh, celebrated 25 year jubilee. Uh, a couple years ago, and uh, I do all that over again. I don't see having left and coming back as a mistake by any means. I think life is not a straight line. You know, it has its detours and stops and curves. So I I would do that all over again because I learned a lot about myself and a lot about life. And and I think I was able to bring that story to others because I was vocation director for a number of years. So I was able to share my story with people and realize, I think it helped them to realize it's not just uh, a straight line of simplicity, that it has its complexities. Well, when I got the phone call from Father Oscar to take this gig that I'm in now, I was presently at Mother Seton Academy in Baltimore, Maryland, where I was for 15 years. That was a place where um, it transformed my life. Because as much as you try to be the teacher, uh, these young people taught me every day. They taught me about resilience, about fortitude, about um, you know perseverance, faith. You know, so it was a hard place to leave, but I knew it was the right decision. And I still go back and, you know, visit a lot. So I don't know much about Mother Seton. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me just a little bit about the school? Sure. Back in the 1990s, when uh, the Archbishop of Baltimore closed uh, many of the inner city Catholic schools, six religious congregations came together and said, what can we do to respond mm-hmm. to this reality? So um, ourselves, uh, the Zaverian Brothers, the Daughters of Charity, Immaculate Heart of Mary, the Franciscan Sisters, and the Daughter of Ch- Daughter of Charity came together and uh, formed this mosaic and said, we're going to start a a school um, for uh, students in the city of Baltimore, uh, recognizing their potential and their their capacity for uh, success. And so in 1992, uh, the, uh, the school began. Small class size, only 15 boys, 15 girls in sixth grade, 7th grade, 8th grade. And we work really hard at getting them into a Catholic uh, or private high school. And we have somebody on staff that works with them through high school and hopefully getting them into a college. I'm very sensitive to how we, for lack of a better word, market the mission of these schools. Um, We have a program at four of our schools uh, that used to be called the Marianist Urban Students Program. 
And uh, about a year and a half ago, the director of our school, St. Mary's here in St. Louis, I was meeting with him and the principal and president about the program. And he he looked at me and he said, Brother Jesse, have you ever thought about changing the name of the program? And I said, talk to me, Troy. And he said, Marianist Urban Students Program. He said, the use of the word urban is coded language for poor black kid. Long story short, through a long discernment process, we renamed the program now EXCEL, E-X-C-E-L, which is an acronym for Excellence in Character, Education, and Leadership. And uh, it speaks to the core values of, of the program. And it also speaks to, as I said earlier, about the potential and the capacity of these students. So I'm really big on the, 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 the marketing tools, the things that we put out in print, that we don't come out and say, we're helping the poor kids. Mm. That we're helping young women and men who have the capacity to thrive, period. As vocation director and at Mother Seton, do you see ways that that experience really uh, helped you formulate or impacted your style of leadership? For sure. For sure. I'm a believer that a uh, successful person surrounds themselves with successful people, you know, and that if you have those people around you and there is a level of trust between you and that there's a relationship. For me, Marinus leadership is all, all about relationship. If you have a relationship that's healthy and honest, and I'm not talking about a uh, kumbaya kind of a relationship where we always get along, but we can be honest with each other, mm-hmm. even disagree with each other, but in a respectful way. And, uh, and then good is going to come from that. So that is how I was a vocation director. That's how I led at Mother Seton when I would mentor teachers and work with the leadership team of the school. And uh, it certainly plays itself out now, you know, in my role uh, with, because uh, it's such a huge umbrella. I have a hard time sometimes just keeping, keeping hold of everything. So, If you had to put a couple key phrases or key terms to Marinus leadership for you, would there be like one or two? Relationship. And one of our characteristics of Marinus education, adaptation and change comes to mind. I think as a Marinus leader, uh, we have to, you have to adapt to the circumstance, to the person, uh, to the parent, to the student that is in front of you at that moment. And we experienced that to the nth degree through COVID. You know, talk about an opportunity to really embrace that characteristic. Yeah. You know, so I mean, I think those are, I mean, there are other things too, but those are two uh, important pieces. And the relationship part is what I said earlier. If you have a relationship that's built on mutual trust, you know, uh, of gifts and talents, then then people are going to respond, you know, to that. You know, that's, that's kind of like my, that's my uh, deep philosophy. And what would be a hope you have for the Marinus family? My hope for the Marinus family is that we would in- increase in our ways to collaborate. I met uh, last week with uh, the Office of Sponsorship. That's an office within my Office of Education. And they're the front line, if you will, with all of the, uh, the high schools. And we met for three days and brainstormed. And one of the things I presented to them was um, looking at ways that MLCNA could 
assist us in our work, you know, because I think often we can get as much as we say we're a family, you know, and I and I and I think our intentions are good, but we can get siloed, you know, very easily into the, the brothers doing their thing, the sisters. And I think we're continuing to grow in that area. Mm. But I think there's more we can do to collaborate. That's my hope for the Marin's family is that we look at creative ways to uh, help each other. And I really feel very confident that that's going to happen. Before this recording, you were mentioning a little bit about the Mary's Lead program. I was yeah. curious if you could talk a little bit about what, what is Mary's Lead. Yeah. So, you know, we have lots of, uh, uh, you know, Marianist leaders in our schools. The majority of them are lay people, you know, and it's a program. It's a one-year program that really um, deepens our, our school leaders' understanding of not only what it means to be a principal, what it means to be a president, or what it means to be in some mid-level leadership role, but how do you lead in a Marianist way? What are the skills? What are the behaviors that that make you, uh, you know, in the eyes of others, and the way you operate and what people perceive, they see you as a, a, a Catholic and Marianist leader. So we had the inaugural cohort of the program that began in February of 2020. It's composed of a, a monthly online engagement and then a mid-year retreat, more monthly engagements, and then a closing retreat. So we were able to do that. Uh, we had 12 participants in cohort one. Uh, 16 in cohort two, and then our dream always without COVID having interfered was to have one cohort end when another cohort began and they would be together. And that finally happened this past June, the end of cohort two, the start of cohort three. Dr. Savio Franco, who mm -hmm. is the uh, director of our, our leadership development program under my office, he's the brainchild of this. I ride on his coattail. You know, he developed the program. He organized the program gives great thought and energy to it and I think it really has um, impacted you know our, our, our leaders now we have more mid-level folks you know that come one of the inherent challenges of all of this though and we talked about this a lot at our office of sponsorship meetings the days when somebody was at a school and they're there you know until they retire are over we get a fair amount of turnover so somebody who went through cohort one and good, good people, committed, you know, educators, and now they've left. And sometimes it's because of uh, family circumstances or money or whatever. And so we talked about how we can't allow that to deter us or, you know, discourage us. It's a, it's a reality of our world today, and we just have to keep at it and keep inviting and keep forming. Because our belief, I said to them at our meetings, has to be that even though they go off somewhere, that we have to believe that what we gave them uh, lives on wherever they are and yeah. whatever they're doing. That, I think, helps keep keeps us sane. Well, in the least year empowering people to take the charism into the world, right? Exactly. Yeah. Don't hit that stop button yet. Before we ask Brother Jesse our final question, I would just like to offer a word of thanks to Brother Jesse for sharing his Marina story with us. And a word of thanks to you, our listener, for listening to this episode of Sharing Our Marina Stories and for your continued support of the North American Center for Marina Studies. 
Make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so that you'll be notified when we have future episodes released. And follow us on our social media accounts at This Is NACMAS on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube so that you have access to our ongoing educational and formational content focused on our Marianist family, history, and charism. And now to wrap up this episode of Sharing Our Marianist Story, we return with our final question. So we know the the founders communicated a lot through letters. Mm -hmm. So if you were going to write a letter to someone, dead or alive, knowing you were guaranteed a response, who would you write to and what would be the topic? Could be anybody. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> there is just some like Marianist heroes that I have, both living and deceased. Um, but there are some that are still alive that I just uh, respect immensely, and I, I hope they know that because I've told them in so many words over the years. Um, but but Father Pat Tonry, who is now out at, at our healthcare center at Cupertino, when I talked about what attracted me years ago when I was in high school was the joy. Well, he is emblematic of that, you know, and I have such utter respect and love for him. I, I lived with him the, all the years that I worked at Mother Seton. I lived at our parish out in Eldersburg, Maryland, which is like an hour outside of the city, long commute. And uh, St. Joseph's was the parish that we had. We have since left there. And um, he was the pastor for uh, the initial years when I was And he, he was just, uh, needless to say, the parishioners just loved. And there's just one, real quickly, one moment when he was giving a homily and he's standing in the front and he says, I challenge any person in this church right now, if you believe that Jesus would be for the death penalty, to come up right now and stand next to me. You could hear a pin drop and I'm looking around and no one moved, and he continued in his homily. When we got home, I said to him, what would have you done? He said, I would have crapped myself. (laughs) That provocative kind of uh, delivery where he just really touched people's heart, both on, on the altar and, more importantly, off the altar.